welcome to the Disciple Makers Podcast. I'm your host, Dave Stovall. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode. Today's clip I'm going to be sharing with you is taken from The Collective, where Bobby Harrington interviews David Young about his new book, King Jesus and the Beauty of Obedience-Based Discipleship. They talk through what it means to call Jesus King and what are those implications for us here and now. And they do a great job of contrasting the two thoughts of I was saved once a long time ago and when I die, I'll go to heaven versus Jesus is my king now and every single day it's my job to obey him in every circumstance. And uh, I think that's something that we all need to hear and to be refreshed on. So let's listen in as Bobby interviews David about his book and has an awesome conversation about King Jesus and obedience. Hope you guys enjoy. Hi, I'm Bobby Harrington, and it is my privilege today to interview David Young about his book, King Jesus and the Beauty of Obedience-Based Discipleship which is a killer title of a book, I've just got to say as we begin. Uh, I'm so glad to do this. Let me tell you three reasons why, just as you're joining with us. First is, I just love David Young. I consider him one of my close friends. And he's a friend that's not just close because uh, I have great affection for him and and the things we've been through. But I also have uh, great respect for him because uh, of his competency in what we're going to be talking about. The second thing about uh, David Young is that he has uh, a range of understanding that spans both practical ministry, uh, leading a church, and his scholarship. He has a PhD from Vanderbilt University. And then thirdly, let me tell you why I'm so excited about our time together, and that is because this is a really practical book. I mean, this is a book where a woman that I know really well, who's got a real nose for um, uh, something that's practical, said, this is a great book because of the stories and the practical applications. So uh, let me just uh, ask David to bring greetings. And uh, um, maybe, David, as you bring greetings, tell us just a little bit about yourself and your background. Well... Hello, everybody, and um, it's a privilege to be with you guys. Um, So I've been in ministry for more than 40 years, uh, taught a little bit at the university level, and um, my heart is with disciple making. So I've worked with this church, the one I'm with now outside of Nashville, for a total of about 25 years. And we've had a great ride, actually, um, I'm 60 now, and the last four or five years have just it's as though we've just really kind of hit our stride. And so been super fun. Um, our congregation is becoming a disciple-making church. We're a church planting church. In fact, we just got our numbers in. Uh, I think today we've, I don't remember the number, uh, more than 350 churches we've planted. Um, m- many of them just in the last several years. So kind of an exciting time for us. Very much so. Well, that's really great. David, when you say... Recently, your church has become a disciple-making church. Can you help uh, explain what that means for our audience? We have been a fairly traditional church. Um, I think if you visited us, you would, you would kind of feel like it's maybe even stepping back into the 50s or something. A really healthy church, a great church with a lot of great people. Um, and 
probably about 10 years or so ago, we went through a pretty serious crisis as a congregation. And as we were coming out, a lot of us just realized that there really has to be more to who we are than just doing church. Uh, you know, it's having a really a cool institution. And um, I've been thinking about disciple making as this is what Jesus did. And so we just began to pray, Lord, um, we know that we're, we are supposed to be making disciples. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Actually, at the time, I didn't know, Bobby, you know, I didn't know you. I didn't know there was a whole community of people interested in this. So we just sort of staked out and, and started flailing around trying to figure out what that would look like and stumbled. One of my first contacts was you, Bobby. I stumbled into your book on uh, transitioning, um, the Disciple Shift, the title. And um, all of a sudden, God started connecting with, with uh, connecting us with all these people who have really been doing this for years and, and have a, a profound understanding of it. And so we've just let that leaven at our church. And at this point now, it's just, it's really, it's really routine now that our members think of their task, their mission as making disciples. So we'll, I don't, we've got a lot of, a lot of disciple makers. Last week we baptized like four different people. I don't think a staff member was involved in any of them. They're people discipling other people. Oh, that's so wonderful. Um, one of the things that we uh, try to champion at discipleship.org is that it's about the culture. And uh, what you're describing is a culture, and the culture is where people think this is just how we do things around here. Yeah, actually, um, so you know, I've heard that language my whole life, and and I thought it must be true, but but it really, we're seeing it now. I'm seeing it. It we've had such a culture change now that like you just don't have to push on it. It's just really natural. This is what people do, and that's why it's become that these are the best years of ministry for me. I think if I just dropped off the scene altogether, the, the, our congregation would just keep going. Um, it's just who we are now. It's really cool. Wow. Well, thank God. That's such a such a beautiful story. So let's talk about this book um, with the great title that we've talked about. And tell us a little bit about what led you to feel a need to write this book and uh, what was going on inside of you and what's, what's your desire with it? Well, the first and most honest answer is that um, you agitated for me to write this book. Okay. So, you can't be talking about me in this <laughs> anymore. <laughs> Just say it. What you're saying is true, but but keep going. Yeah. Uh, you know, a couple of things were coming together in my mind. So here's here now that I, I really have begun to experience the power of making disciple making the main thing, I, I really wanted to promote that. I want to be part of promoting that. And, and sort of the slice of the um, Bible-believing world in which I live, there weren't a lot of voices that I knew of, at least. I'm also, I've, I've been a little concerned that the great and awesome works of N.T. Wright have sometimes been misapplied. Um, so, you know, Wright's probably the most influential biblical scholar in, in the English-speaking world in the last 50 years, or maybe even more, maybe in the last century. Uh, and what he does to restore the concept of the kingdom of God has been a, a great blessing for for me and for many of us. Hey, sometimes, Dave, Dave yeah. do you mind me just interjecting? Can you tell, like you've just said, made a big statement about N.T. Wright, just for people who may not know, can you give a little bit of background? Just who who's this guy, N.T. Wright? Where does he live? How does he influence people? So he's a professor of New Testament at St. Andrews in, uh, in the UK, and he has written, he, there's, there are people who just are specialists now in N.T. Wright. He's written so much. And 
uh, he one of the one of the things he's done. So he's he's he tends to be evangelical theologically, although I think he's Anglican actually, uh, maybe a conservative Anglican. But one of the things that so Wright has almost recovered a lot of things that were largely lost on evangelicals, most notably the idea that Jesus came to bring the kingdom of God and not just to get me my sins forgiven so I can you know wait until heaven comes. So Wright speaks about the kingdom of God as a present reality. In fact, if you hear a lot of language about the kingdom of God today and it sounds natural and normal to you, well, you can thank N.T. Wright for that because it wasn't being used naturally and normally before Wright began to write. Um, he's also helped recover some of the ideas about uh, resurrection of the dead. He's really important works on the resurrection of the dead. He's reclaimed some of Paul in ways that are really healthy for us. But what concerned me was that some people were taking his work on kingdom of God and suggesting that it's mere social justice, that that's really what Jesus came to do. Now, you know, we ought, we ought to be for social justice. I'm for it. Belong to a lot of uh, social justice organizations. My church is a leader in that area, in, this, uh, in social justice in this area. But it doesn't take the place of the reign of God. It's not the same as the reign of God. And so as I was seeing people, in my opinion, misrepresent what Wright was arguing and what the New Testament argues, I felt the need to sort of issue a corrective that it really, it's discipleship that Jesus calls us to. And discipleship brings us into the kingdom, but without discipleship, you're not in the kingdom and you're not living a kingdom life if you're not being discipled to look like Jesus. So that, that was sort of one of my motives as well. And then also just sort of had this sense that, um, the uh, the images we get of Jesus sometimes are so they look so much like we look, and I just I want the real thing. I don't want I don't I don't want one who just looks uh, like me. Uh, somebody said uh, God created humankind in His image, and uh, humankind has decided to return the favor, and <laughs> we often try to make God and Jesus in our image. Uh, rather than really trying to follow him. So that's good. So, okay. So uh, you wanted people to really understand the kingdom of God. And of course, if Jesus has a kingdom, then the kingdom has a king. Talk to us about that. So it's King Jesus. Talk to us about using that language relative to the kingdom, and then we'll transition to the concept of making disciples. The Bible uses numerous titles for Jesus, and king is not the uh, most frequently used title, but it is a title that's used of Jesus. So, you know, you can think of a text like Revelation 19, where he has a tattoo on him. He comes out with a tattoo, Lord of Lords and King of Kings, other, other direction, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And but that tattoo is on his thigh. It's on his thigh. That's right. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. It's okay to have tattoos. Um, then he... What you, what you probably don't see unless you're paying close attention is how many of the prophecies of the Hebrew scriptures were pointing to royalty, that Jesus would come as royalty, would come as a king. And then when you read Matthew's gospel, almost the whole gospel really is just built around the idea of establishing that Jesus is the king that the Hebrew scriptures foretold. So even small things in uh, the narrative of Matthew's gospel, like the, the genealogy, you guys many of you will know this, but the genealogy in the first chapter of Matthew is broken into three groups of 14. And the number 14 in Hebrew spells the word David, it's, who was the sort of the archetype king of uh, Israel. And Jesus is the descendant 
of David. When Jesus is born, you know, there's a rivalry. Will it be King Herod or will it be King Jesus? And so much of what Jesus does in the ministry is establishing his kingship. Yeah. And um, so uh, he, he sits on the throne with God. You know, uh, he, he has all these uh, uh, titles that would accompany a normal king. When he enters the city of Jerusalem, he comes in riding on this colt uh, in the same way a king would enter. And people are, you know, saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blesses you, come to the name of David. But to call Jesus a king brings a, a new set of implications that are healthy for us. That is, you don't just believe in kings, but you obey kings. And so it's mm -hmm. obedience that is the imperative of calling Jesus a king. And that's one of the things that I wanted to recover is the idea that obedience matters. Um, yeah. Because, uh, well, we talk about it. But, but So there, yeah, Jesus is king. No, that's good. Let, let me just uh, punctuate something in what you're saying that I think is, is super important. We tend to think of the name Jesus Christ as first name Jesus, last name Christ, just because like I'm Bobby Harrington and you're David Young, and, and that's how we do it. Uh, whereas that wasn't the case in the first century. And we miss the concept Jesus the Messiah, that Christ really means Messiah, which uh, Scott McKnight and others rightfully point out, even the, the term Christ or Messiah is king. Talk to us about that. Well, this is these are all those prophecies um, of the Hebrew scriptures, and uh, that I'm tempted to want to chase the rabbit of what prophecy is, but I won't. Um, but but they're really not they're not savior in the sense that the evangelical world has kind of reduced the title to. So um, I, I'll make a, a cartoon of it, but the truth is, a lot of us have embraced the cartoon, the Reader's Digest version. The Reader's Digest version is that Jesus came to save me in my sins so that when I die, I could go to heaven. Well, that's not a false narrative, but it is so truncated, so abbreviated that it's almost false because it leaves out so much of what's actually going on in scripture. In scripture, we're being told that we had a paradise that was lost. God established a nation, Israel, and Israel was to be the light of the world. It blew it. It was it was not effective. And so God said, I'm going to bring a new king. And when the new king gets here, it'll be a different kind of kingdom. People will voluntarily enter it. They'll have their hearts and their souls transplanted with my spirit. And when that occurs, uh, they, they will be the light of the earth. They'll be the salt of the earth, the light on the hill and so forth. And then I'll consummate that in the return of Jesus and a new heaven and a new earth, a new creation, a new Jerusalem, new bodies. And I'll, and I'll have my paradise back. I'll get my paradise back. And it'll all be accomplished through King Jesus. So that's the big story, and, and even in a condensed version. Well, and, and that's, by the way, that's also the gospel story, the way the you told it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what it implies is that Jesus, though he is a savior, he's a lot more than that. that uh, so as Matthew Bates, um, in his, well, several of his works, but Gospel Allegiance is one of the best, um, he makes the, the point that the high, the, the climax of the gospel is, is not so much the crucifixion and the resurrection. They are climactic. But it's the fact that Jesus is now, has been enthroned. He's now reigning as king. And he has a kingdom. And he expects us to, you know, to, to be obedient to him in his kingdom. And so when we focus on it that way, suddenly it's more than just I got saved and I know one day I'll die and it'll all be okay. It's no, right now I have a mandate, which is to live out, a life faithful to my king. Boy, that's good. 
Um, in the book uh, that we're talking about, and by the way, if you're joining us inside the collective, um, you can see the image of the book. If you're listening to the recording or you're listening to a podcast, because we, we transport these three ways, um, the book, uh, again, it's a Zondervan book, King Jesus and the Beauty of Obedience-Based Discipleship. The chapter, there's a chapter early in the book about the kingdom of God that um, it's so substantive and so helpful. And David summarizes a massive amount of material, including the material of N.T. Wright that he's talking about. And I just want to encourage everybody that once you start reading it, because we're often in, uh, in our books not used to this in-depth discussion, it's worth it. Stay Stay with that chapter and don't uh, jump ahead to the uh, the more, um, um, I guess we'd call it mind candy of the other parts. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about Matthew 28 because the book is an exposition of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And it starts off with, uh, we have a king, as you pointed out, and kings deserve obedience and allegiance. Uh, but he has authority. So, so talk to us about the five parts uh, that that uh, you describe in the book, David. There are so I think there are five mandates in Matthew twenty-eight, starting at verse eighteen. These are the final words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. And um, I'm guessing most of your listeners, most of our viewers, will know this. But each of the four Gospels ends with some form of sending, and the Book of Acts opens with a form of sending. And so that that makes you know, that makes Jesus's final words uh, in, in each case to be a commission of source. I want you to do something. Matthew 28, um, it gives us sort of a, a really robust version of that. And so Jesus says, I've broken it down five ways. I think it's a faithful way to read it. First, he says, um, I, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. So, so when he was raised from the dead, Jesus was given by God kingship. So the first one is you, we recognize the authority of Jesus. Jesus and only Jesus uh, bears all authority. He says, uh, go make disciples. So it, there's, a, there's a mandate to the fact that he's king, and that is that we have a mission, which is to make disciples. Go make disciples of all nations, he says, baptizing them. So the third mandate is baptism, which means, I really want to talk about it two ways. One of them is the, you know, the beauty of baptism as a sort of a line in the sand moment and that's really what baptism is baptism is our it's it's just like a it's like it's a like a wedding ceremony we've had this conversation Bobby but it it's at that point that I'm legally recognized as married to someone and uh, so baptism is sort of drawing a line in the sand and saying that's it I now belong to him but then there's there's really kind of a richer way to think about it which is baptism is an immersion certainly is in the, uh, language, the Greek language. And so it's a matter of living a life that's been immersed in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, which mm -hmm. is what Jesus says. So it's, a, it's an ongoing thing. We live a baptized life. We don't just get baptized. We live a baptized life. The fourth mandate is to teach. He says, teach them to obey everything that I've taught you. So obedience then becomes one of the priorities of disciple making. And it's really worth noting that without obedience, there is no disciple making. Um, in the same way that if, if a person doesn't, uh, if you're training someone to play a sport, tennis, let's say, and they don't get out on the court, they'll never, they'll never learn. You, you only learn by doing it. 
And then he says, the, the last verse, 20 says, behold, I am with you always. And um, the word behold is actually sort of a, it's a command there. He, so he's not just saying, hello, I'll be here. What he's saying is, look at me, behold me, I'm here with you. So the, the last of the five mandates is to, to see the Jesus who's with us um, and see his presence. Mm. You know, um, in English, when we're being emphatic with somebody, we say, look. Yeah. Uh, uh, both you and I love going to Israel and uh, I have a tour guide that I usually use when I go. And, it, you know, his native language is Arabic, but when he's trying to talk and people aren't listening, he goes, look, look. And it's kind of like that, that emphatic, right? The, the yes. behold is like, look, like yeah. take note. This is almost like imperative that yes. you remember. Yeah, which, right. is, which is better than just, a, uh, it's not just a declarative sentence. It's um, imperative. Like, I want you to see that I am here. Look at me, see me. Mm. I'll be with you always. Well, let's work through each of those uh, five parts um, because I think that, uh, again, it's such a great exposition. By the way, let me just pause here and announce something that won't come out to, to the rest of the world till tomorrow. We are encouraging people to join the Collective Plus, which is a paid subscription. It's really low price. It's a, a subscription service uh, for discipleship.org where you get access to pretty much everything we've ever recorded, including our holistic disciple making course and and uh, all of our previous forums and webinars. For the first 100 people to sign up for the Collective Plus, we're giving them a free copy of your book, David. And so those who are listening, uh, whether you're listening to this live or in one of the classrooms or even on the podcast, um, if you haven't done so, consider joining the Collective Plus and claiming a free copy of David's book. So, uh, David, as we start off then, in terms of these five parts, let's, let's just work through each of them and start us off with, uh, with the beginning. Uh, and then, you know, like, like I said, let's, let's work through each, each of the five parts. Jesus claims to have all authority. And what that means is that Jesus gets the final say in, in all of our activities, all of our interactions, all of our relationships, our ethics, you know, our morals, how, how we treat our bodies, how we treat others, um, what our destiny is, our, what our legacy is. Jesus gets the final say in all of that. So that's what he's claiming. When you look at the Gospels, you see repeatedly the Gospels display the authority of Jesus. So he has authority over storms. He has authority over sickness. Um, he has authority over demons. Uh, in several of the stories, he demonstrates that he has authority over death. When he teaches in the opening uh, chapter of Mark's gospel, Jesus teaches um, in the synagogue. He heals a guy, but he also teaches. And, and Mark does kind of a, a framing device in the opening chapter where he says, Jesus teaches with authority. And then after Jesus does his teaching, all the people say, wow, he teaches with authority. Yeah. Um, so, so what's being said all through this is that Jesus has authority. And authority carries with it the, um, the demand that, that you recognize it. So what I want to argue is that we, if we're going to follow Jesus, which is what he calls us to do, then we have to do it his way. 
so the, the real heresy of the Christian faith, the real heresy of, of, of life is the arrogance of doing it our way. That's, that was always the sin. That's always the sin. Every sin is the arrogance of doing it my way. All the way back to Adam and Eve who did it their way. Mm. And as a result, lost, lost paradise. So mm. we do it our way when, for example, we accumulate all this wealth for ourselves and, um, and live ungenerously, live greedily. It, in each of those cases, we're, we're doing it our way. And by doing it our way, we're depriving other people of what God wants us to offer them. We're also teaching ourselves to depend upon our own abilities, our wealth. Now, the Bible calls greed idolatry several different times. We're, we're practicing a form of idolatry. So what we actually have to do is the very difficult thing of suggesting that, um, of living by the principle that I'm, I have to do money God's way and not my way. And when, when we do it God's way, what we'll discover is this, this great gift. Because remember, you know, the pursuit of money is not, it's not the pursuit of pictures of George Washington or Benjamin Franklin. It's the pursuit of contentment. That's what we're actually looking for. And the more we look for our contentment and the money, less contentment we get. Paul will say at the end of Philippians, you know, when I didn't have anything, I had contentment. And so doing it God's way actually gets us the very thing that we were looking for when we were doing it our way. And that's just money. I mean, it, it, it's across the board. Think about relationships. And in, in the authority of Jesus, we practice forgiveness. We pr practice forgiveness even when it's not natural, even when it's incredibly difficult. But when we do practice forgiveness, what we discover is that we receive God's grace. When we give it to others, we receive God's grace. When we practice forgiveness, in many cases, we end a legacy of anger and a legacy of rage. Um, if you think about just on national scales, where, where nations sort of learn to get along with each other and how, how that ended so much violence and so much oppression and so forth. But then also there's the gift that we receive of, um, we, we, we ourselves are released of the burden of unforgiveness. So I've often heard unforgiveness described as taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. And when we learn to forgive, as Jesus teaches us to forgive, we release people. And then we find our own freedom in that. So what I'm arguing is that we want to follow our rules. We want to, we want to manage all the areas of our lives our way. But to say that Jesus has all authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth means that we're going to ask him, what do you want me to do in this situation? And then whether it's natural or not, whether it makes sense to us or not, we're going to do it. I want to take a quick break and tell you about something cool happening over at discipleship.org. It's our discipleship.org collective. It's an online community for disciples and disciple makers. And if you fit in either one of those categories, then the collective is designed just for you. The website itself is super cool because it's basically like stepping into a virtual church building with a welcome center an auditorium for our main events and even classrooms. Right now, you can get free access to this collective with all of its webinars, seminars, ebooks, and even disciple-making assessments for you personally or for your whole church. And this is a community, so you can also have the opportunity to connect with other disciple-makers. 
And while membership is free, there's also a premium access option, which includes courses, certifications, and online gatherings with other leaders from around the world. So head on over to discipleship.org slash collective and sign up for your free membership today. Okay, the the next part is the uh, commandment uh, to make disciples. So he's given us all authority, then we're to make disciples. What does that mean? Like, like just give us the basics of what he's saying there. Well, I should ask you that because you're the director of discipleship.org, not, not I. But disciple-making, so what Jesus does is he calls 12 guys, he invests his life in them for three years, close to three years. Uh, he, he trains them. He, he loves on them. He builds a community out of them. He, he brings his own image out in them. He trains them to become like he is. And then he sends them out and says, now you go do the same thing. And that's really what we're talking about when we're talking about disciple making. And that's really different from some of the other missions that churches will adopt. So I don't want to be critical of other churches, because, but my own church, we had this. Our mission for a long time was to have a great church. That was my mission. So in the, in the book, I don't remember which chapter it is, but I'll tell the story probably in the discipleship chapter of my own son, uh, who, who had every Christian opportunity imaginable. You know, I had Christian schools. We did devotionals every morning. You know, he'd listen to the best preaching in the world. He went to a great church. Um, Jonathan had every Christian opportunity, loving Christian home. And when he was 14 years old, he told me he didn't believe in God anymore. And he, he went into a real deep depression that got increasingly worse. And it made me, that was part, by the way, part of the reason why we became a disciple-making church, because it, it dawned on me, I wasn't really all that interested in Jonathan. I was interested in my congregation. And I didn't think about the fact that the institution is only here, if you want to use business language, to give a product. And if we don't give the product, the institution is irrelevant. But I've been worried about numbers and budgets and you know how cool the building was and whether we're growing or shrinking and never asking the question, is this guy following Jesus? And uh, actually it was a, two guys in our church who, uh, after Jonathan crashed, it was a, a really terrible thing that he finally went through in his college years. We brought him home from school. Two guys discipled him and they just loved him and they helped him come to know Jesus one of them used Taekwondo and the other used filmmaking. And now my son is um, he's planting a church up in Oregon right now. But it was because guys loved him enough to get into his life. Yeah. So if your church is all about building an institution, that's the wrong metric. That's the wrong score. It's a, that's a terrible score at the end of the day. Or if your church is about, you know, we're bringing shalom to our community or, you know, we're going to make a difference or we're going to touch lives. Oh, I get all that. That's not, it's not terrible, but can't we do better than we're going to touch lives? Yeah. Can't we do better than that? I mean, can't we make disciples of all nations? That's what Jesus said. He didn't say all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, go, therefore go touch lives yeah. or you know, make a difference in your community. Yeah. Goodness, I don't want to make a difference in the community. I want to change the world. Yeah. I want to make a disciple. I want every single person to get the Jesus option before he returns, and I want to be part of that. Yeah. So that's what I'm arguing. It's disciple making, but it's also disciple making versus the other missions that we. I don't mean it sound cruel, but that we sink to because we do. Yeah, something. they're almost substitute missions. Let, let me just uh, let me just pick up on something you're saying because you're talking about Jonathan and and David. You've seen in your own son this coming to life with the mission of Jesus. Yeah, and uh, I've seen the same thing. Uh, 
my, my own son never uh, left the path of Jesus, but I, I tell you what, he sure uh, became disgusted with contemporary church and, you know, dealt with a lot of things with that. But once he caught the vision of intentional relational transformation, which is what I describe as disciple making, it's intentional relational transformation, that that's the heartbeat, the core of what the church is about. Uh, it did something, and I want to punctuate this point by uh, saying something about our current cultural moment and why your book is so important for people to look more at this. So here's what I mean. The other day, Jordan Peterson said I uh, was interviewed, and he had a great line about our contemporary culture. And he said that right now, people don't have a good story to live by. And uh, so they're, they're getting distracted by anger and um, self-centered lives and all that, but they're really hungering for a story built on truth and grace that's worth giving their lives for. And behind what you're saying is a lot of people are no longer willing to give their lives for the institutional church. But once they catch a vision that the greatest mission on planet Earth, the greatest mission in the history of humankind was given to us by Jesus to go and literally change people's eternal destinies, to change not only their eternal destinies, but their life in this world, and that it's the greatest mission a person could ever have to be disciples and make disciples. That's what we need to be shouting from the rooftops. And I'm, I think I've gotten a little louder than I wanted to, even on this uh, recording. But uh, I mean, it's like, that's it. That's, that's, that's the story, the story that you told earlier, the kingdom story, the, the gospel story. It's not just a story, it's, it's the true story, it's reality. And the greatest mission is this mission. And why, why settle for touching somebody's life and having a better church service when you can be involved in changing the trajectory of lives in any eternity by being disciples who make disciples? Uh, okay. Um, anyway, I know you agree with that. So let, Absolutely, let's, yeah. Let, let's go uh, on. It's a, it's, it is a thrilling thing to see people enter the kingdom of God through, through being discipled by someone who loves them. Yeah. And, and for, I just want to say this for young leaders. Um, it's just so important that that's the vision we're casting. We're not asking you to manage an institution or to, you know, go into ministry to keep, save people happy. Spend your institution. So my goal is to spend North Boulevard out. I want to spend it if the whole church ceases to exist because we spent everything we had for the kingdom of God, we won. Yeah. Like I, it's, it's, when, I, when that dawned on me one day, we want to have so many babies as a congregation that it's irrelevant whether we exist. We want to spend everything we have so that at some point, you know, we can say to the Lord, we did everything you called us to do. And that, that actually motivates people. You know, people will be motivated if you say, hey, you know, we're going to, I don't know, we're going to have a homeless shelter. That's great. We do it. Our church does it. We have the biggest Meals on Wheels ministry in the county. We do those things. People will be motivated to come to that, but then they lose interest. You know, the, the world usually does better at those things than we do anyway. But there's one thing we do that the world cannot even touch, and that is we make disciples of all nations. Mm. You know, when we talk about 
planting 350 churches, like it's hooping and hollering. We're, we're knocking down the gates of hell. We're baptizing Muslims into their Lord Jesus Christ. And those things are, that's just so much richer than, again, not only ugly, but then kind of the small, petite little visions we develop ourselves. Acts chapter two, when Peter's introducing the church in this sermon, you know, his vision for his church is blood, fire, and billows of smoke. You know, that's the vision God has for your church. And in Acts chapter five, Luke says that, I think it's verse 13, he says that the apostles were doing miracles. And here's how Luke described his church. No one dared join them. <laughs> how about that for a vision statement? I want a church so crazy that nobody's, everybody's afraid to come to it. That's, that's the kind of vision that's available to us, but only if we're making disciples. Oh, that's good. Okay. Um, I'm conscious of our time. Of course, I love talking to you and we can keep talking to you all day. Talk to us about the part where Jesus said, go and make disciples. Uh, so the imperative command is make disciples. And then the participial phrases describe how you do it in the Greek text. So that means you make disciples uh, by baptizing them, teaching them to obey his commands, and by remembering that he's with us. Talk to us about being immersed into the life of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You and uh, I and Tony Twist published a book on this. So uh, not to plug it, but just say that we actually have developed this in a renewed book um, uh, on baptism. So I'd invite people to look at that. Baptism is mentioned well over 100 times in the New Testament, and it, it is the normative way that someone enters into a relationship with Jesus or seals the relationship. So we have faith and love for Jesus before our baptism. But there's a transaction that occurs at baptism in which we are joined to Jesus. So to put it in the language of, um, of Paul, he says in Romans chapter six, that we're buried with him in baptism and then we're raised up. So there's a, there's a, a raising up that occurs in baptism. Or Colossians, he says that we've been united with him in our baptism. Um, and it, there are different ways that it's modeled in the New Testament. You know, Acts chapter two, we're baptized in order to receive the forgiveness of our sins and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in Acts 22, Paul speaks about baptism as having sins washed away. So the water baptism, it's a transactional moment that says, I am no longer that guy. From here out, I'm this guy. Uh, something, you die at baptism and you're born into a new a new reality, a new- Hey, hey Dave, let, let me just uh, uh, pause here just, just so we can reiterate something both you and I believe. Um, when, when David's describing these texts, it's describing the normative experience uh, that the New Testament prescribes, but not the exclusive. Uh, David is not saying you can't be saved if you're not baptized. He's just saying in the New Testament, it's the normative way that people made that commitment. We're saved by grace through faith, and 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 God looks at the heart. And uh, but at the same time, we want to follow the normative way in the Bible. In terms yeah. of what they described. Well, people are people get afraid that if you talk about baptism, then you're going to default to a works form of righteousness. But uh, that's that's not the case. Uh, so, for example, when you say "I do" in a wedding, you didn't earn your husband or wife. It's not like you earned them by saying "I do." All you did was in your in in the vows, you just expressed what was already there. You just sealed it. You expressed it. And that's one of the cool things about baptism is that you don't baptize yourself. You just die and someone else baptizes you. Mm. Like you, don't even, you, you don't even work. You just, you know, we say, put your hands over your nose. We'll take care of it all. Um, but yeah, so um, 
in baptism is normative. I do want to say that. In a in a richer sense, again, what I want to say is that baptism is it's kind of that line in the sand moment where we live now an immersed life. And what we say is, mm-hmm. so this is how Jesus puts it in Matthew 28. He said he doesn't say teaching them to be baptized in the authority of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which we, which would still be true. But he says into the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So it's into a relationship with them. We enter into this relationship. So I think one reason why, I don't want to get too grammatical, but the most common Greek word for baptism is bapto, B-A-P-T-O. But the New Testament prefers the word baptizo, B-A-P-T-I-Z-O. Baptizo implies an ongoing process where bapto Im- implies a one-time event. Mm. And I think that's significant because what we're being taught is to live an immersed life, live a life immersed in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we do that, then it, it sort of trickles down into every crevice of our lives, who this God is and what this Jesus wants and how mm. this Holy Spirit moves us. And so it's an immersed life that we're looking for, a life that's been immersed in that which is divine, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, that's good. That's so good. Okay, let's move to the to the next part of the Great Commission, and that is, um, here's what we often think it says, and I'm going to state what it does say and then take us from there. We often think it says, teach them all of my commandments. In other words, make disciples, baptize them, teach them my commandments. It doesn't say that. It says, teach them to obey all of my commandments. What's going on there? Obedience is the only way to learn things. Um, So obedience is not to be confused with works-based righteousness or legalism. It's not the same. Uh, But since Jesus is king, we obey. We don't obey in order to be saved. We obey because we are saved. So this is the, you know, this is the often observed order of Ephesians, the second chapter where Paul says, twice we're saved by grace through faith not by works. And then in verse 10, as he's wrapping it up, he says, for we are his workmanship created to do good works. So the, the good works follow, the obedience follows the, the faith, the, the, the grace of God. But unfortunately, because humans like often get that kind of uh, confused, we've, we've almost heard evangelicalism push back on obedience and act like obedience is an ugly thing or a dirty thing. And churches will so we've been pre- I've been preaching through the book of Deuteronomy, which is all about obedience. I mean, over and over and over again, God says, if you obey what I say, it's going to go well. If you don't obey, I'm going to treat you like I did the Canaanites. And I've had several members come up and say, you know, I hope you don't go into legalism. And it just strikes me that that's the heritage that some of us have is that we can't even talk about obedience without people getting afraid. Um, where obedience is, obedience is a beautiful thing. It, uh, imagine, uh, imagine what obedience unleashes in our lives. It unleashes the power of the Holy Spirit. It unleashes these beautiful relationships. It unleashes a rightly ordered set of values and ethics. O- obedience is how we, it, it's, 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 it would be like saying, I, I'm not going to follow my, the GPS on my cell phone because I don't want to obey anybody. I'm going to do it my way. No, follow the GPS and get where you're going. It's the quickest way to get there, in most cases at least. And I'll tell you another thing about obedience. So there's a there's a, a philosopher, Robert Jackson, I think is his name. It's in the book, but I, don't, I believe Jackson's name. He tells what he calls the, the, the problem with Mary. I think that's the name of his little analogy. So imagine Mary, she is a, 
a university professor who understands everything there is to know about the color red. She knows its wavelength. She knows how it's used in marketing. Uh, she knows uh, how it, why it, roses are red. She, she can tell you everything there is to know how the, how the eye interacts with the wavelengths. She knows everything there is to know about red. Only she lives in a white room. She's painted white and there's never been any red in her room. And what he says, Jackson says is, any three-year-old who sees a red stop sign knows infinitely more about the color red than Mary will ever know. Because we know through what he calls qualia, that is, we know through experience in something. Mm -hmm. So until you obey a command of Jesus, he says this in chapter seven, if anyone wants to know whether, John chapter seven, if anyone wants to know whether what I'm teaching comes from the Father, let him obey. Obedience is the best teacher. When we obey the commands of God, we will know infinitely more about them than when we just read them. So I had a contractor in my church came up to me one time. I just preached on turning the other cheek and he came up and he was kind of agitated and kind of a big guy. And I thought, mm, it's not going to end well. He looked mad. And he says to me, um, I want you to teach me how to do this. Turn the other cheek. He said, cause I don't really believe in it, but I intend to do it. And I, I've so often thought about that. That guy knows more. When I was at Vanderbilt, my last year, they had a, professor who was hired who reportedly read 16 foreign languages but he wasn't i don't think he identified as a christian he was in the uh, biblical program the the contractor who obeys that text knows infinitely more about it than the professor who can read it in 16 languages because obedience is how you learn it mm. and so that's what i'm arguing that's what jesus is arguing tell mm. him to do what i said and when you do it you discover the beauty that's how you that's how you discover it's true. Yeah. I think that was a long answer, sorry. No, no, but this let's stick with this for a second. So in John 14, Jesus says, uh, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And uh one of my friends describes it as obedience is uh Jesus' love language. Yeah, uh, uh, David, talk to us what you've learned about international disciple making movements and obedience. Oh, yeah, that's a good question. I hadn't thought of that. Um so we, we've partnered with several organizations in church planting at, across the global South. And so this is, how, this is how it's typically done. They go in with Discovery Bible Study. By the way, you can go to North Boulevard's website and see more about that. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing discipleship.org. I know Renew has some material on that. Discovery Bible Study is a very simple tool where people sit down, they ask eight questions about a biblical text, but the questions are designed to get you to obey a text immediately. So immediate obedience is really important in this process. So for example, it may be a text about forgiveness and the disciple will say to the, to the people who are listening, who can you forgive? Who can you go forgive today? And they're really serious. You gotta go do this. You have to obey it or you won't understand it. And these folks will go home, they'll forgive somebody that, like they've never done before. And then they come back the next day having experienced a miracle which they only got through obedience. And so what they'll say is, can we do another one? Can we do another one of those? And through doing that, um, again, we've planted more than 200 churches in the last three years, just through that process. They obey, when they obey, God gives them a miracle. They get the miracle, they wanna obey something else. Give me something else. And I just think that one reason why North Americans actually don't experience miracles or don't realize that we're experiencing miracles is because we're not all that obedient. Uh, you know, we read a text and we want to understand what it meant, but we're not all that interested in obeying it. The gospel grows where people obey. That's good. That's really good. Okay. And then the last part uh, is such an important part 
but often neglected in discussions of the Great Commission. And that's uh, what we've been talking about, where Jesus says, look, look, remember, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Talk to us about that. That's like the, maybe the most beautiful, the richest part of the whole commission is that we're, we're never left on our own, that we do it, we do it with an active Christ. We do it with a, a God who still does miracles. We do it with a God who, um, who is constantly guiding our path towards his ends. We do it with a Jesus who's present with us, who answers our prayers. And I, and I want to say, um, so I, I was talking with Matt, uh, Matt Dabbs, just before we got on here about how, how much God is answering their prayers in the, in the church that he's planting there in Auburn. And uh, it was just cool to hear him talk about, you know, they pray for this and they get an answer. And we were just kind of musing aloud that that in, in institutional churches, sometimes so many of what we're aiming, the needs that we're aiming for, they're not all that big, but they're being met. So we don't need that much. So we never have, we don't have, we don't have much dependence on God because we don't need him. We got everything we need. The budget's in. We got enough people. But when suddenly you really stake out on a huge commission like Jesus gives us, you'll quickly realize if, if I don't have Jesus, this isn't going to happen. And then he comes through. That's when he comes through. Like if your church's vision is to, you know, renovate the carport, you probably don't need Jesus for that. I think you're going to do okay on that one. If your church's vision is to make, give every single person a chance to hear the good news of Jesus and to plant thousands and thousands of churches, you're going to need Jesus. You're going to know you need Jesus. You're going to start asking Jesus and he's going to start answering and you're going to see the Jesus who is always there. And mm-hmm. it's phenomenal to see. We have miracles all the time at my church. Two weeks ago, we had a woman who she'd gone in. She's had cancer before. She had a spot. I want to say it's on her either liver or kidney. She had a, a CT. It was, um, I think they said the size of a large grape. They were getting ready to go do a biopsy. We got all around. We had all the prayers offered for and so forth. We actually have the image of this thing on the CT. She goes in two or three weeks later for the biopsy. They do the CT. Totally gone. They can't find it. They've got an image of it. From the previous one, it's not there anymore. That uh, I'm not bragging, but I'm just saying it happens all the time. Now I've got a video just uh, that I got not long ago from a guy. We were praying for a little boy in uh, Atlanta who um, had a, a very serious uh, disease. And both his parents are medical doctors, by the way, and they had they knew that we were pretty involved in prayer, so we prayed over him. He's healed of the disease, and I've actually got two little videos of this boy, two videos of this little boy thanking our church for praying over him. And uh, it, both his parents are MDs. Like, this isn't a trick. They, they're they like, they can't believe this disease is suddenly gone. I'm just saying, I guess I'm saying he's he is with us, but he's saying, look at me, behold me, I'm here. That's good. So you mentioned this. Let's um, pause and talk about it because I, I think many people will be curious. Uh, one of the things that's common of disciple-making movements internationally, but not so common in North America, is this emphasis on prayer and fasting. So talk to us about your experience and your church's experience with calling on the power of Jesus through fasting and prayer. I, I want to be transparent and say that I feel like we're third, in the third grade now. Um, but 10 years ago, we, we were in preschool. 
but we haven't graduated and we're, we're not really close to it yet. But our congregation began very seriously to, um, to try to elevate the role of prayer. And it, it's, it, it goes back to that concept of obedience. Until you do it, you don't really know why you want to do it. You, you'll know why you want to do it after you do it. And so we've done, um, man, we have had so much involvement in prayer. We have a you know, really active prayer ministry. We, every morning our church has prayer. Every morning at seven o'clock, we have an online prayer service. It's been going for over a year now, probably a year and a half or so. Um, we've had uh, quarterly prayer sessions. We've had fasts. Whenever we get ready to do something big, it's not uncommon for us to have a 40-day period of prayer and fasting. And again, what it's hard to describe what happens, but suddenly you begin to realize that you depend upon God, but you also begin to realize that he's actually got plans that are even better than what you had. And I'm not the kind, like I'm a really, I'm not, I'm rational. I mean, I, I use ration, may not <laughs> use it very well, but this isn't language I'm used to. This is language that always sounded fuzzy to me until I started doing it. And then I realized, I mean, he really does. He just, when we ask for it, he gives it to us. Um, but you have to ask for it. And, I, and if you're wondering, well, well, how, you know, how does this work? The answer is you just start. Don't wait. You just do it. Mm. And if you have to start at two minutes to start at two minutes, as, as our mutual friend Shadanka Johnson says, start small and big, start somewhere. Mm. And, you know, I learned to enjoy coffee by drinking it. And I remember the first couple of cups, I didn't like it, but I was, uh, I was not going to, I was not going to let my brother's, who are already drinking coffee, make fun of me for not being man enough to drink it. So I acquired a taste for it. Now I can't live without it. Um, that's how prayer is. You may have to acquire a taste. And that's a Western thing. Westerners are, um, we're not all that good at prayer and fasting. We're too, we're too fast. We're too busy. We like to be in control. Oh, that's great. Well, I've really enjoyed this time with you. Uh, I know uh, people who are watching or listening uh, have also enjoyed their time uh, together with us. I'm going to give any last words uh, to you, David, before we close. I just want to uh, encourage people uh, to get the book, King Jesus and the Beauty of Obedience-Based Discipleship. It's available on Amazon.com. It's a Zondervan book. Uh, one of the most important books in the disciple-making movement in North America right now, uh, because it, it is an exposition of that crucial text, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. So I couldn't be more encouraging for people to get the book. And, and uh, now we'll turn to you for last comments. I think American Christians are aware of the fact that um, the tide is turning against us, we're restless, we're unsure, we're not sure which direction to go. And so here's my encouragement. Don't, don't flail around trying to find the newest or latest thing. Um, like, you know what, be, it would be an honor if on my tombstone, it just says, here's David Young who invented not a single new thing. That we, are, we actually already have, we have a vision and a mission that was already given to us. We don't have to come up with a new one. God doesn't have a private contract with you in your church. Just go back and find the one that he already gave. And Matthew 28 is a really good way to do that. Um, and, and find the thrill and the joy of this great commission of knowing who's in charge, knowing what to do, 
having your line in the sand moment where you say once and for all, I'm not going back, so help me God. Discovering the beauty that comes with obedience and then seeing the God who's already with us, he's already on our side. You do that and you won't regret it. purchase david young's book king jesus and the beauty of obedience-based discipleship today it's available on amazon so make sure you head on over there to purchase that if you're interested in reading that book and also want to remind you guys november 4th and 5th of this year 2021 we're hosting the national disciple making forum in nashville tennessee and those tickets are available to purchase now over at discipleship.org thank you so much for listening and i'll see you on the next episode